Hey, what's up everyone? Today on the New England Gothic, we have a special deep dive episode on the New England Vampire Panic. Now, I'm going to admit, I'm going to be honest with you all. I'm super nervous to cover this because this is the first subject that I'm covering that has also been pretty widely covered by other podcasts, specifically podcasts that I myself listen to. So I'm just nervous. I just, you know, I want to do it justice because this is a great story with many layers. This is also going to be a pretty long episode, a pretty deep dive. So I'm just going to get right into it and we can save the catching up and news and information for later. So once again, this is the New England Gothic and I'm your host, Kate Ford. And today we are sinking our teeth. Ha ha. Did you, did you get the pun there? I'm so funny. We are sinking our teeth directly into the neck of the New England vampire panic. So when most people think of vampires, personally, you know, I always imagine a dark castle and shadows flickering across a vast corridor and some menacing but like low-key handsome figure with a dark cloak and razor-sharp teeth. Teeth. Razor-sharp teeth gleaming in the moonlight as this bloodthirsty creature plunges its fangs into the soft flesh of their newest victim. Sorry, I, I definitely went off on that. But anyway, many people would be shocked to learn that that's a very modern description of a vampire, and the legend of the vampire and vampire-like creatures have extremely ancient, universal, and... I'd say more humble beginnings. So, because today's subject is so vast, I want to break it down into sections. So, the first section today is going to be vampire lore. What are we talking about when I say vampire panic? Let's, you know, I'm going to do a little explaining here. So, the concept of a vampire has existed since pretty much the dawn of humanity as we know it. Generally speaking, a vampire is a mythical creature that sustains itself by feeding on the vital essence, quote-unquote, which generally refers to the blood of the living. Specifically in European folklore, vampires are undead creatures, they're described as ghoulish, corpse-like, and they are usually found with fresh blood from their victims dripping down their lips. So keep this description in mind. Ghoulish, corpse-like, fresh blood, dripping all over the place. We've got some messy eaters here. But a little bit more about vampire history. A few years before our New England vampire panic, there was an 18th century vampire panic in Eastern Europe, which led to a lot of staking corpses in their coffins, grave diggings, and even government officials engaged in the hunting and staking of vampires. So this is a thing that has had a grip on even the high members of society. It is generally concluded that this vampire myth comes from A, premature burials. We've heard a lot about that. I'm sure if you are interested in the world of the macabre at all, you have heard of people being buried alive. I myself have listened to at least 10 podcast episodes about that subject, so I'm just assuming, but it did happen a lot. 
Another option here was a misunderstanding of how bodies decompose and also a misunderstanding, which this is going to be the prevalent situation in the New England vampire cases, but a misunderstanding of how certain diseases work. So we've got vampires. They've got a grip on everyone. What do we do with them? There are multiple methods of destroying a suspected vampire, and staking was the most commonly cited method, particularly in South Slavic cultures. Aspen was also used for stakes, as it was believed that Christ's cross was made from aspen, and aspen branches have been found on the graves of supposed vampires, and this was believed to prevent them from rising in the night. Many suspected vampires were most often found staked through the heart or through the mouth, which was usually found in Russia and Germany, and in northeastern Serbia, they would find vampires staked through the stomach. There's also a history of using, quote, anti-vampire burials, so burying sharp objects such as sickles to stop the corpse from rising. I believe very recently a corpse, I think it was Poland, was discovered with a sickle around its neck. So we got some spooky graves happening here. Also, this is kind of a funny fact, but during the New England Vampire Panic in Plymouth, Massachusetts, which is extremely close to where I'm from, they would just flip over the corpses (laughs) so that they couldn't get out. They didn't, you know, there was no fanfare. There was no dramatic dismembering or staking or anything like that. No lighting anyone on fire. They just said, maybe maybe if we flip them over, they just can't get out. And that's what they did. So speaking of decapitation, decapitation was the preferred method in German and Western Slavic areas with the head being buried between the feet, behind the bottom, or away from the body. We will see this later. This is why I'm bringing this up. This act was seen as a way of, you know, influencing the soul not only to leave faster because some cultures said that the soul would linger in the body. The vampire's head, body, or clothes would also be spiked and pinned to the earth again to prevent from rising. So they did a lot of things to try and prevent these vampires from rising out of their graves and wreaking havoc on their families. So it was also said that the Romani people would drive steel or iron needles into a corpse's heart and they would place bits of steel in the mouth, over the eyes, ears, and between the fingers at the time of burial. They were also said to place hawthorn in the corpse's sock. They would also drive a hawthorn stake through the corpse's leg. In Venice, a corpse had been found with a brick shoved into its mouth, which was also interpreted as a form of vampire, like anti-vampire work. We've also got the people of Bulgaria with over 100 skeletons found with metal objects as well, such as plow bits and yeah. So all over Europe, we've got all of these traditions and specific ways to prevent vampires. Furthermore, extreme measures were also taken all over Europe, which would include pouring boiling water over the grave or just completely lighting it on fire. In southeastern Europe, a vampire could also be killed by being shot or drowned and then by repeating the funeral service which I'm not really sure if that means shooting them or drowning them while they're alive or taking their corpse and then kind of like re-killing them. I think it's re-killing them. 
They also believed you could sprinkle holy water on the body or perform an entire exorcism. In Romania, garlic would be placed in the mouth, and as recently as the 19th century, the precaution of shooting a bullet through the coffin was taken. For extra-resistant vampire cases, the body would be dismembered, the pieces burned, mixed with water, and then administered to family members as a cure. We will also see this later. In Saxon regions of Germany, a lemon instead of garlic would be placed in the mouth of a suspected vampire. The reason I am giving you all of this background and information on various European vampire myths and traditions, if you will, is because the people of early New England were, you know, as we know, European immigrants, and they were settling in different places in New England, and they brought their traditions with them. And also, this is kind of where we're seeing, oh, okay, wait, garlic, vampires, okay, I know that. Oh, shooting a, shooting a bullet through the vampire, okay, okay, I recognize that. Oh, the stake through the heart, okay, you know, we're seeing where this modern idea of a vampire has originally come from. And I just thought it was cool history. According to the American Journal of Physical Anthropology, the New England Vampire Panic obviously, like I said, shares many features with these European folklore beliefs. When it comes to the New England-specific vampire panic, there are 12 documented historic accounts of vampire beliefs and activities happening in the 18th and 19th century in New England. They do range in time from the late 1700s to the late 1800s. In 11 out of the 12 cases, historians can almost confirm without a doubt that these were cases of consumption, aka tuberculosis. So we've gone over a little bit of very broad vampire lore in history, so now let's move on and talk about tuberculosis, because like I said, as we know, the vampire panic was caused by an outbreak of tuberculosis in New England, aka consumption. So according to the Smithsonian, the classic symptoms are a chronic, sometimes bloody cough, along with a fever and weight loss. To helpless loved ones, it appears as though the victim is withering away, aka being consumed. Without medicine to slow its spread, TB was a devastating affliction. By the dawn of the 19th century, it was responsible for approximately one out of every four deaths in the eastern U.S., To this day, tuberculosis remains the world's most deadly infectious disease, responsible for well over a million deaths each year. Based on what they were seeing and a good dose of superstition, many early New Englanders believed that vampires, not disease, were responsible for the symptoms. The article continues and then ends with a quote from a newspaper in Connecticut in 1784 where a councilman cautioned readers against being misled by, quote, quack doctors who encouraged families to dig up and burn dead relatives to stop consumption from spreading. So, yeah, obviously, um, we'll get into it, but a lot of people were being dug up, burned, and eaten. So if you recall, in the beginning of the episode, I did describe what these people believed vampires to look like. We've got ghoulish, undead-looking creatures that are dripping with blood. So that sounds like possibly someone with tuberculosis. You know, they're withering away, they're pale, they're corpse-like. 
And because they're coughing up so much blood, they would be described as having blood around their mouth, blood in their mouth, just a lot of blood everywhere. So I can easily see why this connection was made because obviously this vampire folklore goes very, very deep. When we talk about the New England vampire panic, people get really surprised to know that it happened so close to the 1900s where we feel like, wait, there's no way they couldn't have been advanced enough to know that diseases exist and it's not vampires, especially after the Salem witch trials, which most of New England found to be an extreme embarrassment. They were very ashamed. But we have to keep in mind that modern medicine, you know, people are starting to kind of figure out tuberculosis at the time, but, you know, they still weren't there yet. We've got these rural New England people who, in a lot of these cases, they're rural, they're farmers, they're not the most educated people. So they're living with their family's traditions and superstitions from their home countries. So, it, you know, it's a lot of pieces that make the puzzle. That is the vampire panic. So what I'm going to do next is I'm going to go into specific cases. Some of them we don't have a lot of information on, and some of them are a lot more well-known. We'll get to that. I'm going to go in chronological order. It just so happens that the most famous vampire of New England is also the most well-documented because it happened the latest in time. So Starting in Vermont, we have the case of Rachel Harris, and this took place in Manchester, Vermont. Rachel Harris Burton lived in Manchester, Vermont, and she married a captain named Isaac Burton, but not long after, the 20-year-old fell ill and passed away. She died and was buried locally around 1792. Captain Burton remarried, and again, it wasn't long before his second wife, Hulda Powell, was stricken with tuberculosis as well and also died in 1793, so only a year apart. This guy's moving fast. He's on colonial time. The fear of vampires is starting to take hold socially at this time, and the locals actually blame Rachel for Huldah's rapid deterioration. The locals become so fixated on this that they claim Rachel had become a demon vampire out for revenge because her husband had remarried so soon. In an attempt to ward off the undead, Residents actually exhumed Rachel's body and burned her at a nearby forge. This scene was described by a judge in 1860, The History of Manchester, and it was later published in the Proceedings of the Vermont Historical Society in 1930. According to these documents, up to a thousand people came out to witness them taking the liver, heart, and lungs out of her body and burning them on a blacksmith's forge. And they also described having an officiant at the altar, and it says, quote, in the sacrifice to the demon vampire, who it was believed was still sucking the blood of the then-living wife of Captain Burton. Based on this account, some people actually believe the townsfolks decided that she wasn't a vampire, that maybe she was actually a witch, but either way, they dug her body up, burnt her organs, and sacrificed them, and up to a thousand people witnessed this. So that was the first case of the vampire panic. Again, that was Rachel Harris of Vermont. All right, up next, we've got Abigail Staples of Cumberland, Rhode Island. In February 1796, the Cumberland Town Council granted permission for Stephen Staples to exhume the body of his 23-year-old daughter Abigail 
who had died of consumption. Shortly after Abigail's death, her sister Lavinia had started showing the same symptoms of consumption. Lavinia told of dreams in which a shadowy figure sat heavily on her chest and drew out her breath, during which one of these dreams, supposedly the name Abigail, was called out. The town officials decided that Staples was allowed to do this, and they decided to, quote, try an experiment to save Lavinia's life, despite noting the decision was made, quote, against the better conscience of the council. So there's no record of what came of the exhumation or whatever happened to Lavinia. And I think this case is interesting because the council members are quoting, yeah, so like, we're not really down with this, but we're gonna just kind of experiment and see what happens. And I think her reoccurring nightmares of a shadowy figure sitting on her chest and making it hard to breathe, you know, it makes sense. You're dying of tuberculosis. So interesting. We're going to move on to our next case now. The next case also takes place in Rhode Island. This is in Exeter, Rhode Island, and it is the case of Sarah Tillingast. Tillingast? I'm so sorry. I don't know how to pronounce this. I tried to look it up. So sorry. There was just not a clear answer in how to pronounce that. So anyway, Sarah was the first of 14 children to die in her family. It was also said that her father went by the name Snuffy, and I thought that was cute. Sarah's siblings would all complain over the years that Sarah's ghost would visit them throughout the night. And by 1799, five more children had died of consumption and a few more were seriously ill and on their deathbeds. So they decided to exhume the bodies of all of the dead children and all except Sarah were found to be in advanced stages of decomposition, which is interesting because she was the first to die. Her heart was removed from her body and then burned in front of the family home, and this supposedly worked. Our next case, again, is in Rhode Island. A lot of these are happening in Rhode Island, so just keep that in mind. So this is the case of Nancy Young of Foster, Rhode Island. At this point, it's been about 30 years since our last documented case, so it is now 1827. So... Nancy Young dies of consumption at the age of 19, and her sister, quote, commenced a rapid decline in health with sure indications that she would soon follow Nancy to the grave. When Nancy's other siblings began to decline, their father, Captain Levi Young, asked his neighbors and friends to exhume and burn her remains, while all the family members were gathered around, and he encouraged them to inhale the smoke from the burnt remains. This cure apparently did not work as five more of his children died. And I'm sorry, I cannot imagine the smell of, you know, you're sitting there smoking, essentially, the charred remains of your decomposing family members. I'm going to be honest with you, that's fucking gross. Anyway, moving on, we are going back to Vermont. This is the Spalding family of Dummerston, Vermont. So this one involves a famous poet named Henry David Thoreau. So in his journal, September 26th, 1859, Henry David Thoreau said, quote, The savage in man is never quite eradicated. I have just read of a family in Vermont who, several of its members having died of consumption, just burned the lungs and heart and the liver of the last deceased in order to prevent any more from having it. End quote. 
At the time, Thoreau himself had actually been battling tuberculosis, which he does eventually die from. The case in which he is referring to actually was likely to have happened in the 1790s, and it was the Spalding family. So they lost six of their 11 children to consumption, and the father, Lieutenant Leonard Spalding, was desperate. When another one of his daughters grew ill, the body of the most recently deceased child was exhumed and the organs were taken out, removed, and burnt. Incidentally, one vampire-adjacent belief of the day was that vines could grow between buried caskets and that once all the burials in a plot had been connected, another family member would die. So, when his son Reuben is buried in 1794, his grave was set apart from those other family members and supposedly this worked and no more family members died. So I guess technically this isn't chronological order because this was back in the 1790s and our last case was in the 1820s, but because of Thoreau writing about it in the 1850s, I got all mixed up, so I do apologize. So we are making good time here. I have been doing all of this to lead up to the two most famous vampire panic stories, and I've got a lot of information on them. The next half of this episode is about to be a doozy. This story centers around the Ray family, who over the course of nine years lost multiple family members to consumption. The first to die in the family was their 24-year-old son named Lemuel in 1845. Four years later, the father, Henry B. Ray, dies, followed by his 26-year-old son, Elisha. Three years after Elisha dies, in 1854, the eldest son, Henry Jr., is fallen ill now, and this is when everyone really starts to freak out. The family begins to suspect that they are being haunted by vampires who are eliminating family members left and right. They feel like they need to do something about this, so according to newspaper accounts at the time, it was with the intent, like in all these cases, to protect the remaining family members, but they dug up the bodies of Lemuel and Elisha and burned them immediately. Apparently, according to records, this worked because Henry Jr. actually ends up surviving his bout of consumption and the rest of the family survives as well. So the Jewett City Vampires leads us to our next case that I'm just going to call JB55. So in the actual 1990s, so you know, when I was born... A group of children were playing near a hillside gravel mine and they found some graves. They stumbled upon some skeletons. These bodies were discovered in Griswold, Connecticut, which is very close to Jewett City, and it was the 90s, and there just so happened to be a serial killer named Michael Ross that was killing people in the area. Initially, police believed that these remains were more of his victims, so they immediately investigate. But as we know now, it turns out the bodies were over a century old. When they realized the bodies were so old, they called in the Connecticut State archaeologist, Nick Bellatoni, who soon determined that the hillside contained a colonial-era farm cemetery. Now, New England is full of unmarked family plots, and there were 29 burials that were very typical of the 1700s, early 1800s that were found in this hillside. Just very standard. 
The archaeologists actually referred to them as, quote, Yankee style, meaning they were laid to rest in thrifty, simple wood coffins without jewelry, no objects, in very minimal clothing. And their arms were resting over their chests or by their sides. So we've got the classic Yankee style burials. And unfortunately, many of the burials were young children. So everything seems normal, except there was a burial that they called Burial Number 4, which was painted red and carved with JB-55. It was also one of the only graves to be entombed with stones. It was said when Bellatoni lifted all of the rocks off of the coffin, he uncovers this red-painted coffin and a pair of skeletal feet. He says he remembers they were in a perfect position, but when he raised the next stone, he saw that the individual had been, quote, completely rearranged. Meaning Bellatoni had discovered a body that had been beheaded and the head was placed on the skeleton's kind of like lap area and the thigh bones were crossed. Essentially, it was a skull and crossbones, like a Jolly Roger, like a pirate symbol. So the skeleton is laid to rest holding its head and its thigh bones are crossed like it's holding a skull and crossbones. Does that make sense? Am I describing this in a way you all can imagine? Because that is unsettling. Bellatoni, the archaeologist, said he had never in his career seen anything like it. Analysis of the body also showed that the beheading, along with other injuries, including rib fractures, occurred about five years after the death. So, We've got evidence of the heart being removed as well with those rib fractures. It was also noted that someone had also smashed the coffin. So, someone on the team mentioned, hey, could this be related to the Jewett City vampires? Which is the story of the Ray family that we just covered. Realizing this very possible connection, Bellatoni calls a man named Michael Bell, who is a Rhode Island folklorist and an expert on the New England vampire situation, I'm gonna say. So it was determined that this burial situation happened around the same time as the Jewett City vampire panic, and the setting, you know, it makes sense. Griswold was rural, it's bordering southern Rhode Island, where a lot of these cases occurred, and JB, like mentioned in the very beginning of the episode, was dismembered in like anti-vampire style. All of these factors made the research team very confidently conclude that they had also stumbled upon amazing physical evidence of the vampire panic. So mind you, a lot of this evidence was newspaper clippings, you know, hearsay, honestly, rumors, whatever. Here we have very physical evidence of this phenomenon. I actually want to add that in 2019, JB55 was like 99.9% ID'd. So when the body was found in the 90s, DNA was taken, but obviously DNA advancements have skyrocketed in the past few years. So through new technology, Y chromosomal DNA profiling and what's called surname prediction, based on genealogical data, ties JB55 to a farmer named John Barber. So there was an obituary from 1826 for a 12-year-old named Nicholas Barber, which also mentions his father, John Barber. So JB55. 
a coffin with the same name, inscribed as NB13, was found close to JB55. So we've got the obituary of the son Nicholas mentioning the death of his father. We've got the two coffins, the ages match. It just makes sense. There was also evidence in JB55's body that he had been a farmer or a laborer in his life. So they're like 99.9% sure they did find the Barber family and John JB55 was John Barber. Now, if you've stayed with me throughout this entire episode, I'm excited to now tell the most famous vampire panic story of all time, the story of Mercy Brown. So I personally have visited Mercy Brown's grave, and I just feel a weird emotional attachment to this story because of that, and I'm just gonna, we're just gonna tell it. In 1883, in Exeter, Rhode Island, the Brown family is hit very hard by consumption. Mary Brown, the mother, was the first to die in 1883, followed six months later by her daughter, Mary Olive. The husband and father watches helplessly as his only son, Edwin, grows weaker and weaker ten years later in the winter of 1892, when the consumption has come for him as well. In the meantime, his 19-year-old daughter, Mercy Lena Brown, gets sick and almost immediately passes away. There are two types of consumption, aka tuberculosis, that tend to affect people, and we're seeing both of those in this family. So there's the type called galloping, which just takes them out really fast, and then there's like a more chronic tuberculosis, which kills them very slowly over the course of years. So Mercy Lena Brown seems to have died from the galloping tuberculosis, whereas her brother Edwin seems to be suffering from the long-term chronic tuberculosis. Keep in mind, during the time of the Mercy Brown case, it is now the 1890s, so people have been coming up with quote-unquote cures for tuberculosis for a very long time. A lot of these cures had to do with getting open air, fresh air. Some people would even go horseback riding. Some people would lay in sanitariums with their head out the window. Just lots of air happening here. So Edwin actually went away to Colorado to cure himself with the fresh mountain air. As tuberculosis ravages this once strapping young man, he struggles to breathe and is continuously coughing up blood. He, like I said, goes out to Colorado. I forgot to mention there was supposedly magical healing mineral water out there. And he stays there for 18 months. But he's not getting better. And George is desperate at this point to save his remaining child. But he was said to not believe in vampires. With Edwin not doing well, he actually heads out to make his way home, which would have been a grueling journey for someone in the late stages of tuberculosis, because at the time it was traditional for you to die at home surrounded by your family members and, you know, having them watch over you. I'm sure George Brown at this point is incredibly overwhelmed because he's essentially lost his entire family and he's about to lose his son. So even though he doesn't believe in vampires, he lets the townspeople convince him to have his family's bodies exhumed. When the bodies are exhumed, the body of Mary Brown and Mary Olive Brown are nothing but bones. The townspeople then turn their attention to the casket of Mercy Lena Brown, who had died only eight weeks earlier. Now, there are differing accounts as to whether or not Mercy's body had already been buried 
or if it had been in the crypt until the ground thawed and they could easily dig a grave. I've been there, side note, and I've seen the crypt and I've seen the grave. And like I said, I don't know, it's just intense to know the story and then just stand there and kind of stare at it. Either way, they dig Mercy up or they take her out of the crypt. And when they lift the lid off her coffin, her body is found on its side. And her face appeared flush, like as if there were, you know, just like red cheeks, like she's living. There was also blood in her veins and in her heart. There was actually a doctor on site for this, Dr. Harold Metcalf, who the entire time said he objected to this and he explained that the lack of decomposition of Mercy's body was perfectly normal given the fact that she had only died two months ago and that it was freezing out. But knowing that medicine had done nothing to save the Brown family, the people of Exeter completely ignore the doctor and they, you know, they see the fresh blood in Mercy's heart and they see her flushed cheeks and they say, she's a vampire and we need to do something about this. They gather firewood and they light a bonfire on a pile of nearby rocks. They then cut out Mercy's heart and lungs and cremated them on the funeral pyre that they have just created. Mercy Brown's family was not present for this. I'm assuming nobody wants to watch their child get cut open and her organs burnt up. But they bring the ashes to the Brown house and they essentially feed them to Edwin, claiming it will cure him. So he consumes this concoction of his dead sister's heart and other organs possibly mixed with water, and he still dies two months later on May 2nd, 1892. One of the reasons this case became so well documented is because Dr. Harold Metcalf actually did an interview with the Providence Journal where he describes this gruesome scene, and he says, you know, I looked over the bodies. I have no reason to believe anybody is a vampire. It was very explainable that Mercy Brown looked the way she did. However, they didn't want any proof and they still removed the heart and liver and they still burned it and they still fed it to Edwin Brown. The case is also well known for literary reasons. So it was suggested by scholars that Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula, knew about the Mercy Brown case through newspaper articles and possibly based the novel's character Lucy upon her. This fact is also argued because apparently, you know, Bram Stoker was in the area and he did know about these cases. However, he had already been well into writing Dracula by the time Mercy Brown had died. But that's not to say that this New England vampire panic, since it was spanning over the course of decades, that's not to say it didn't inspire him. So that's kind of cool. Also, H.P. Lovecraft wrote about the vampire panic in The Shunned House, which is another interesting story because I've been to The Shunned House. I mean, it's right in the middle of Providence. I've taken photos of it and talked about that story as well on TikTok. But yeah, so the Mercy Brown story just kind of blew up because it's one of the last ones and because two very famous authors have referenced it in their work. And there you have it. That is a brief ish deep dive into the New England vampire panic. So I definitely was really interested in learning more about the lore involving the vampires. I was really into reading about the mythology and the background and, 
you know, it wasn't obviously just European cultures that have vampire myths. There are vampire myths from every single culture all over the globe from the start of history. And I just think that that's so interesting. This was such an interesting rabbit hole to fall into. I'm very fascinated by cases of, I guess, like mass hysteria or just, you know, mythology just taking over the communities and people doing really irrational things for the sake of folklore. So let me know what you think about this episode and this topic. And per usual, we are on Instagram, the New England Gothic. The email is thenewenglandgothic at gmail.com. If you have a spooky story you want me to read on the air, I know I haven't done my listener lore yet. I am still waiting to get a co-host going on that. I have a few potential locked and loaded. I just, I have a very crazy schedule, you all. So I just have to wait to be able to meet up with someone or Zoom with someone. It's going to happen. And I have all these amazing listener lore stories. So just keep sending them in. Um, I promise they're not going nowhere. What else? I'm on TikTok as Creepy Caitlin, C-A-I-T-L-I-N. So I cover a lot of these stories on TikTok as well. If you want to see my face with a filter on it, let's be real. But if you want to see my face, go ahead and go on to TikTok. And other than that, I need to go to bed because it's getting late and I have to release this like tomorrow morning. I'm like pushing, I'm forever pushing my deadlines and procrastinating. And so, yeah, I love you all. And I'm going to go ahead and edit this right now and get it ready to go. And I hope you all have a great weekend and I will see you all next week on the New England Gothic. My name is Kate Ford.